0: this morning I woke up in another part of my brain. Take the idea for a moment that one usually wakes up in a similar area of the brain every day of one's life. When I open my eyes I woke with a feeling of confusion and a sense that something indiscernible had shifted during the sleeping hours and now I was somewhere else, not in another place physically but something similar. The eye of myself had crawled through the thickness of memory and consciousness to some other place in the structure of the brain and emerged within a new gray coil. When my eyes opened I felt I was viewing the once familiar room through a four-foot-thick piece of slightly yellowed glass. It was like being under the surface of a pond and opening one's eyes and straining to see a measure of distance to the kicking legs of one's swimming partner only there was no one else with which to measure the dislocation. I fought the urge to lay down and return to sleep in order to regain my proper place, to shift back into a developing place where for 40 odd years I'd been waking up. I've been moving around through the day trying to readjust within a mild sense of panic. I kept getting lost in the notion that the drift of my past and the sway of familiarity might be just a centimeter away. But in the brain, a mere centimeter can mean hundreds of miles of cranial distance. It can mean years and years, or even a whole lifetime of familiarity being dismantled by a shift within a limited physical space. Insofar so far as object-oriented metaphysics is tied to a rejection of social theory and social perspectives on knowledge and politics, it does often result in a discrimination against the mundane and the everyday. In a sense, I lean the opposite way, as I extend concepts that are used to understand human practice to non-humans. For example, I've argued that everything needs to be equipped in order to make itself felt, For anything to have effects, or to express its existence, it needs to be equipped. This obviously applies to humans. Humans need shelter, we use tools. But I think it also applies, to a very great extent, to non-human entities. How can the ocean make itself felt? Or how can the air get its due? How can the bees in South London, where there are far too many, given the limited green space, speak out. The question of how they are equipped is absolutely crucial with regard to how they can assert and possibly express themselves in relation to some problem. If we want to broaden the awareness and appreciation of environments, nature, non-human entities and objects, we have to appreciate their need to be equipped and gain the capacity to affect others. I'm pro-equipment of things. For me, equipment is not just about technology. I think there are two things to explain. One is that I use a really broad notion of equipment. Equipment is the extent to which things can serve as instruments for other things or can sustain them. It can be a garden where bees are staged as natural beings that matter. A garden can be equipment for the air, filters can be equipment if it means that certain toxic elements stay inside the machine. Equipment is about the reliance of entities on other entities in order to assert their existence. The other point is that there is a tendency to think about equipment as technology, and therefore as a way of specifying human culture. Humans use hammers, therefore the use of tools characterizes human culture. It's not wrong to treat technology in that way, but it's just one of many approaches. You a bitch, eat a bitch, a bitch, No abyss is as familiar as one's mouth, the unheimlich mouth, an internalized abyss which we presume to control but which always exceeds such tidy precepts. The mouth is the meeting point of the sacred and the profane. Sacred texts are salivated by the mouth's viscosity. The word is born in a cavity that tears, shews, licks, spits. The mouth negotiates numerous ways into and out of itself. It is the conduit for air, voice, food, fluids. The collision of these disparate elements constitutes the noise of the mouth. Purity is rendered impossible in such a contaminated corporeality. The strength of the rational is contingent on language's ability to evince itself from its mode of production. Language, in its very moment of inscription and emission, is awash amidst the slides of the slippery body. In other words, the mouth is not only an articulating engine that cites, that voices language, but also an organ that is present as sight. To incapacitate the mouth in its role as a vehicle of language lowers the mouth and thereby places the sonic to the fore. When the mouth is in such a state, one might say a state of statelessness, it is refracted inwards, it becomes a cavity resonating ad infinitum, a sonic fully irrigated by materiality. When fully somatized, the voice is unassimilable. And unnameable. The inevitable entwining of the sacred and the profane generates the noise of the mouth and the viscosity of screams. There is every reason to believe that science, in particular natural science, or more accurately, a precise science of complex natural systems, is said to be the single most important driver of our times, especially in relation to environment, health, medicine, energy, and the future of computing, the impact of which, in the 21st century, from a societal and economic perspective, is likely to dwarf that of IT era, of the 20th century. New kinds of software will power this science, enabling the realization of unprecedented ability for predictive multi-scale models that permit grand challenges in science to be tackled, large-scale in silico experiments, example future climates, highly novel data acquisition, analysis and visualization techniques, and enhancing creative imagination and scientific discovery. Nature may not obey or be explained by existing mathematics, the rules that have been arguably successfully applied to physical systems, most notably calculus and in particular ordinary differential equations. Therefore, there is a strong case to be made that we need a new kind of science that is based on new kinds of thinking and a new kind of computational language or approach that is likely to be fundamentally radically different to that of the first so-called scientific revolution of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, which continues to dominate science today. Rather than ecology being a priority, it's more accurate to say that the priority is to accelerate a precise, predictive science of complex natural systems, a new natural science spanning biochemistry to the biosphere. The focus is on both developing new theory about complex living systems as information processing systems, for example cells as information processing devices and biochemistry as information processing machinery and on novel computational approaches that allow the testing of such novel theory including a scientific computational and software framework to enable impossible in silico experiments to be conducted especially about the interactions between climate and ecosystems where such an approach is really the only way to conduct experiments, other than the biggest experiment on Earth, the one anthropogenic activity is currently conducting. I remember, when I was a kid, I often used to lie under my bed. I had a small supply under there, with comic books, and sometimes food, like apples, biscuits, raisins, or chocolate in a metal box. I also had prepared pencils and sheets of paper. I liked to draw. Mostly, I was just lying there, on my back, staring at the bottom of the bed, daydreaming, I remember that now and then I used to make drawings on the unpainted parts of the wooden bed frame. It was fun to do, and the drawings stayed there. When I grew older, let's say in my early teens, I sometimes used to crawl under my bed to look at the old drawings, to check that they were still there. Sometimes I added new lines, not very often, but it happened. When I was 16, I got a little room of my own in the same building as my parents. They bought me a new bed. I remember it was this kind of bed that could easily be converted into a sofa. When this new piece of furniture was installed, I remembered this with the childhood drawings. This was when I more or less started being serious with painting and drawing. I was a bit challenged and stimulated by what I had done earlier under my bed. During this time, I was also heavily influenced by the surrealists and the romantic modernist poets such as Rimbaud and Isidore Ducasse. This worked like a good combination. I slipped in there under my new sofa bed and made a couple of small pencil drawings on the wood construction. This was the start of a long series of underneath-the-bed drawings. It was a fascinating thought that these drawings would be kept secret there under in the dark. It was exciting to imagine that no one would ever see them, unless of course they turned the bed upside down. But even then, no one would ever imagine to look upon those thin pencil lines as something made on purpose. I had my secret project and it just went on. Later, when I became older, I snuck in in the other people's beds during parties or dinners. It was always exciting to be invited to new people's homes. If there was a chance, I took it. Thank mm-hmm. Music by The Pyramids, Joshua Abrams, Eckhart hellers Franz Outzinger and Josef Suki, John Hassel, Native Instruments, Mike Patton, Alessandro Bossetti, Popenhausen, and the Canary Grand Band, Yuji Yoshima, Dave Phillips and Randy Yao, Paul DeMarinis, Sebastian Rue, Amy Yoshida, Zink & Copper, Otekra, Goody Pal, Maggie Payne, and traditional music from the mountain provinces of the Philippines. Readings of texts by David Wojnarowicz, Norcia Maris, Christoph Migon, Stephen Emmet and Leif Elgrin.